0: Hi, my name is John Light, and I've spent over 20 years working throughout all corners of the recruiting world. Our podcast, Drowning in the Tech Talent Pool, is a resource to help you stay afloat and get ahead of your competition. Hi, and welcome to the next episode of Drowning in the Tech Talent Pool. I'm your host, John Light, and also the president of Sabretooth. And with me today, my guest is a gentleman named Peter Saddington. And Peter, I'm gonna ask you to introduce yourself in just a moment, but I gotta say, I'd be remiss if I didn't look around you in the video and go, okay, this guy digs cars and racing and getting his hands a little dirty.
1: Well, you're not wrong, John, and I really appreciate you for giving me an opportunity to hang out with you on your podcast here. Long story short, I'm a second generation race car driver. So my first my father did that, and I have some amazing, wonderful memories of that. And my son also drives full time. So we're into our third generation of racing. I like to say it a genetic disease. That's something that's in the blood. But from a professional standpoint, the long story short of it is over the last 20 years, over two decades, I've been a perennial entrepreneur. I built multiple startups. I've had one acquisition over a nine year grind and I've had three early equity buyouts. I built three venture funds and I'm currently running my third one, which is a $16 million ventures fund that's focused specifically In deploying capital in the Bitcoin mining space and Web three projects, so that's what I'm doing
0: now. Okay, well, no wonder your office is in a garage. You have to have everything close to where you can go from one job, one task to the next in a hurry. I got a question, and this question actually was on my mind the other day when we spoke. So, your son's not like it's not like he's 21 and on a racing circuit somewhere, right? I think if you said he's 10, yes, sir, he's racing. What is he racing? What kind of vehicle is he on so currently he's racing karting
1: so he has a cu- couple of go-kart chassis that i build so we are a full privateer team which uh-huh. means that everything is financed out of my back pocket and he's in his third full season of racing long story short uh, when he wanted to be a little bit more like his appa his old man he was pressing us for about nine months to drive this is when he was six years old and we kept kind of blocking him and saying you don't want to go fast it's just something that you see your old man do And then finally, after asking us for nine months straight of wanting to go racing, Uh we finally said, well, we understand this world. If we're going to be doing this, then we're going to do it hardcore. So we pulled him out of school. We homeschool him and he's on the track three weekends a month. And every day uh, after school, he's on the simulator. So we have a really nice simulator set up so he can race against other relatively professional race car sim drivers. So that's how he gets his his practice in outside of the track.
0: Wow! One way or another... He's going to have some great stories to tell at some point, probably already does. I mean, to me, that's amazing. And that shows, you know, I grew up, one of my daughters played collegiate soccer as a goalkeeper. Her mother played collegiate soccer for four years, in the big yeast up at Rutgers in the early 90s. And I know we had a lot of commitment for tournaments and everything else. What you're talking about, that's like, you bought all in. I'm betting it's not just because you know it, I'm betting because you take that approach to everything you do.
1: Well, you're not wrong. I believe that, and this is something that I tell my children all the time, is that be the best version of yourself all the time. Now, this doesn't mean that you're going to be the best in what you do, but what I'm asking them is to bring their best self to the equation every single time. And in many cases, sometimes bringing your best will actually put you up in the upper echelons of talent and the upper echelons of success. And so I don't ever ask them to worry about the outcome. Of their effort rather the outcome is a function of effort and so the focus is yeah. on the effort itself are we willing to bring every our full self to the game and put everything out on the track of the field do our best in school etc and the results should be a function of that
0: yeah that's like that same thing message and we're starting off talking about children but i'm about to accelerate this into talent and tech and whatnot but <laughs> i tell the same thing to my kids and when i've coached youth football as well I tell the kids, I'm not really interested if you're the biggest kid or the most athletic kid or the fastest. What I'm interested in is do you consistently have a, a great attitude and put out great effort? Because if you can do those two things over time, the results typically take care of themselves. Absolutely. They really know. You know, it's funny because to me, that's a hard lesson for a lot of people to learn. And when you start dealing with where you sit and you've got these venture funds and you've already shown great success as an entrepreneur, you understand what it is to grind. You understand what it is to deal with disappointment. Right. And I think one of the harder things in, in business is how do I go from just having my being punched in the gut to being my best self so that I'm giving 100, 110 percent, whatever for what's in front of me instead of what's behind me. But I'm really curious, you know, when you look across the VC landscape, when people come to you and say, hey, I've got this really great idea. And you want to vet them and I'm not looking for specifics or you know trade secrets, so to speak, but just do you ever vet people and look at them and wonder, man, does this person get it? That it's effort and attitude over time. And sometimes that time part of the equation, that variable can be way out there. Like you said, it could be a seven, eight, nine year grind in, in some cases.
1: Well, ab- absolutely. And I think it's imperative that if you're moving into the venture space or you're building you're an entrepreneurial minded or you're an entrepreneur or an operator, you want to build startups that require venture funding or you know, in, any type of investment from a family office or even an institution. Mm-hmm. I think it's important to understand some of the some core tenets. Number one, a venture fund is slated at a ten year life cycle. Now, this is actually pretty important because it grounds the realities of what it takes, number two, to actually build something to success. And so, for me, I mm-hmm. have a really powerful rubric and a really powerful story in that my first company took nine years to get to a point of acquisition, And that is exactly what I tell. The young bloods who are coming to me for money is I ask them two things. I say, hey, are you willing to work 16 to 20 hour work days for 10 years straight to make this idea, your passion, a success? And can tell you instantly within their response, whether they hesitate, whether they start mumbling, whether they haven't considered this idea that it takes 10 years to do anything. And the second thing is, are you willing, just like you said, are you willing to be punched in the gut? And so those two ideas is what I ask questions around, around resilience and perseverance. That is what it takes. I find it fascinating when I hear the younger generation complain and bemoan the fact that success in today's world is hard. And the short answer to them always is, what are you talking about? Do anything for 10 years straight and do it with excellence. Do it with good intentions. Grow your book of business and become per- beyond proficient. Become a relative expert in that in ten years, and I guarantee you, whether it's a software company, whether it's a laundromat, whether it's a restaurant, whether it's an online business, mm-hmm. whether it's—I mean, pick one. Dig ten years in. I guarantee you, you'll be making enough money to support your family, and if you've done exceptionally well maybe even enough to stock up a war chest of savings or, a, you know, a, you know, a, a big amount of money. And so I find it to be poor form that the younger generation doesn't realize this is literally choose anything, choose anything, dig in hard, dig in deep, do your best work for mm-hmm. 10 years straight. I guarantee you, you'll come out quite fine. That's
0: actually great insight. Sabretooth originated in a venture studio. And part of the, the philosophy behind the venture studio is, you know, everybody gets a piece everybody has some, some level of ownership but it's with a 10 year horizon unless there's a liquidity event there's a 10 year horizon to get there and part of that's motivated by the fact it takes time you know and mm-hmm. when you look around at a lot of people and i think a lot of people in tech and this is, what, this is something i've noticed you know i grew up in a time frame being older than you and probably older than some of the people listening I grew up in a time frame where we went through the economic downturn, the malaise of the late seventies and early eighties. When, you know, people complain now, well, if I go get a mortgage, it's eight and a half percent or whatever the number is today. Well, I remember my parents talking about 20%, you know, 15 to 20% mortgages. So just hang on. We're not there. We're kind of heading that direction, but we're not right. there yet. And I just remember going through a time frame where you have a business cycle. And you can't time a business cycle in many respects. You have to endure a business cycle. You have to ride it and be what you need to be to get through it from a low point to a high point and back and so on and so forth. But I look around a lot of these people who are in tech today who weren't working, had even gone to school, maybe not even high school or junior high when the dot-com bubble, you know, they didn't see Y2K and all the, the frantic movement around for a big nothing burger. Yeah. They didn't see these other you know, gigantic sort of tectonic movements in a market. And now they're seeing it where, and I just posted something on LinkedIn the other day where there are more tech layoffs in 23 than there were in 22. And you don't hear a whole lot about it now. Earlier than 23, you heard about it every day. Now you don't. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think there's there's this generation of workers, and I'm talking maybe a 15, 20-year segment in tech who haven't seen the compression or the ups and downs of business cycle like other industry sectors have and so there's this expectation well you know we're going to have the next paypal or we're going to have the next you know open ai or we're going to have whatever it might be that comes down the pipe and success is very rarely an instant thing a short-term thing at least in, in business right it's going to take time i think what 80 plus percent of all businesses that start fail in the first five years Oh,
1: I'd probably say it's even higher than that, and, and you're absolutely right. It needs to be communicated that there is a, a essentially a decade required to get to some level of mm-hmm. proficiency, to get to some level of efficiency, to get to some level of understanding knowledge and know-how. I mean, all of this is time in the seat, and the only way to to garner that experience, to garner that knowledge to that be, ends up becoming wisdom, is you have to be into it. And you have to grind it out for that long. It's so easy in today's world to start. One of the things that I communicate to yeah. my son and daughter is don't be a, don't just be a starter, be a finisher. And I'd rather you start something and then take it for a couple That's years and become proficient. To the and at least at proficiency, you can say, you know what, I'm proficient at this thing. Whether it's a game or a, you know a sport or even a business idea, I'm proficient right. at this, but I don't like it. Well, now you have an inf- you can make an informed decision. You can do it if you'd like, and you could probably persevere on it and make a good income. But you now have enough mm-hmm. knowledge and know-how where it's like, you know what? I want to move on to something great, amazing. Maybe in the future you can come and revisit this and with a newfound vigor, a newfound perspective, a newfound a market opportunity, and you can get a jumpstart because you already have proficiency in it. And so I tell the young right. bloods today: it's easy to start, but man, it's harder to finish and be a finisher, not a starter.
0: I think that right there is great insight. And it's not just for someone who wants to be an entrepreneur in tech or anything else. I think it's for people in school. I think it's for people in a job. You know, one of the things I try to impress on my own children is that if you start something, especially like in a team sport, if you don't want to play, whatever that team sport is, I understand you wait till the season's over. If you committed to the season, if you committed that time period to that project, whatever it is, you finish it. And it's not to punish them; it is to teach them the lesson that in life, perseverance counts. It counts a lot. It counts a lot in your relationships.
1: You will have no good excuse uh, at the tail end of your life when you'll say, "You know, uh, you know, I didn't like this, or I didn't like that, and you didn't like this, you didn't like that, or this didn't work out, and this didn't work out." Or th- it's like, okay, so how long did you try this? Oh, I did it for three months. or I did it. For- well, then you don't know anything, brother. <laughs> You don't know anything about that idea. And you actually, while you want your opinion, you might think your opinion is valid. You, frankly, are lacking a year, you know, years of experiential understanding so that you could actually communicate so- with sophistication as to why this didn't work out or why this wasn't important to you or why this wasn't worth endeavoring on, why this wasn't worth persevering on. That I'll take because there mm-hmm. are lessons learned in that. But so many of you, you could probably find stories on this on Google, Yahoo News, or anything relatively quickly that the younger generation, they are so good at flipping jobs. They'll move from one job in three months to another job and they'll hang out five five months. Some of them, and I actually talk with these guys sometimes, which is I can cut through the BS so quickly with them because these young candidates are professional interviewers, not professional workers. They're really good at getting yeah. the job because they have so much seat time interviewing. Uh, And they're so good at interviewing and getting into the game, but they can't persevere the job because they don't know how to finish. They don't know how to dig in and actually learn. And that is is something that the younger generation needs to understand is that dig into a point where you understand it. When you understand it, you'll have a valid and verifiable opinion, whether you should do it or not. But at least you'll have some context, some historicity, and Mm -hmm. some good data points
0: as to why this thing didn't work out. So Focus on finishing, not just starting. You know, one of the things that's starting right now and has been what for Mercy for a year and a half now is, you know, the chat GBT, the generative AI that's rolled out into the marketplace. And now you see a lot of these big companies, in a sense, trying to be everything to everybody and corner the market on the foundational LLMs, the foundation of generative AI going forward. It feels like it doesn't leave a lot of room for the little guys, so to speak. Mm you know, for the startup and entrepreneur. But what I've noticed over my lifetime is that when there's a downturn or you have a bunch of layoffs like tech has experienced in the past year and a half, two years, it's often followed by a wave of entrepreneurialism, <laughs> you know, and I think there's an opportunity in everything that's going on in the market right now for that wave to manifest itself when people understand that they need to focus in on specifics rather than trying to be everything to everybody You know, I don't know about you, but I'm pretty confident I'm never going to compete head to head with Google or LinkedIn or Apple or Microsoft or name whatever big fang type company you want to name. Right. But what I can do is wrap my hands around something that I do really, really well Mm. and execute it at a high level and find a way to deliver to the market that the big players can't do because they're trying to do so many other things. And I I wondered if you could speak. A little bit about what you're seeing about this is a great time or not just to start but to start with the end in mind you know that eight or nine or ten year run and maybe it manifests as that maybe it doesn't but how do you see the market right now with the changes going on and the opportunity that's presented for people who've been squeezed Mm. yeah to go back in the workforce or maybe to make their own workforce Absolutely, we are now in. So I wrote,
1: I, th- I wrote my third book about this, and I've actually created videos on in and around AI, machine learning, and the future. And I was speaking mm-hmm. specifically to the younger generation and letting them know that let's just go back to the context of my third book. My third book is called Gravity, creating creating infinite infinite opportunities, and how you do you create gravity in today's world. Well, the focus of my book and the three main points is that we live in a mobile video and remote work world. That and this was published in 2019 so this was pre lockdown this was mm-hmm. pre you know covid and all that stuff. And so I'd like to you know sh- rub my shoulders off and brush my shoulders off and say I told the, I knew <laughs> the future but it was even, it was heightened. Everything that I had espoused uh-huh. in my book was heightened during lockdown. We went all mobile. We went all remote and video is even more leveraged today than it was three or four years ago and so in today's Mm -hmm. world of mobile video and remote work we now have an opportunity i always look at it as an opportunity some will say a challenge but it's an opportunity for us to fine-tune our engagement online our content online our narrative online our video presence online our optics online then Everything that we do. And so I foresee, and I think this is the crux of my answer to your question, is that we now live in the most important decade from 2020 to 2030 of personal branding. We have AI and we have machine learning systems that are constantly amalgamating, congealing, and putting together all of our data. And at the end of the day, what the internet will say about you has been curated, managed, and put together by people that aren't you. And so, my call to action in my third book was that since I believe that the twenty thirty to twenty twenty to twenty thirty is going to be the decade of personal branding in a mobile video and remote work world, it is imperative now to use the tools of today to create and establish your brand to ensure that you are the owner, the controller of the optics and perception around who you are. Right? It's not some machine mm-hmm. system. What what people don't often think about is the fact that you as a child, as a 18-month-old baby, already have a digital persona created by the data brokers of today in technology. And you might say, well, how is that possible? Because your mama posted your 18-month picture on Instagram, TikTok, LinkedIn, Facebook, Google and Twitter, so you already have a personal brand because of your mama who posted it on social media. You know what? You probably sh- start controlling that not as an eighteen-month-old, but you understand my point. From eighteen, if you were born today, eighteen months ago, and your the first photo is posted up now, from now to the next eighteen years, your digital profile, your digital brand is being created. Mm-hmm. And so the younger generation, I believe, using machine learning, AI, and tools like this need to be tooled up, need to start taking command and control of their online narrative. And I think think this is going to be, in my opinion, this is why I wrote my third book, I believe this is going to be the competitive advantage of the future. Everything that you're doing right now, John, with this podcast Mm -hmm. is ensuring that the narrative and the brand and the perception of who you are has been dictated. And controlled by the content that you are willing to put time into so that the big data brokers and all the big data is collecting this stuff. And when people Google John or that, you know, drowning in the tech talent pool, they're going to find you and the message that you want. And so we have so many tools from video, video editors. I mean, everybody can become a photography master these days, a video master. These The tools make it hard. They've lowered the barrier to entry. And so to answer your yeah. succinctly in one sentence, it would be this. Today, we have technology that you can use to level yourself up, grow yourself into the career, the project, or the passion a passion that you would like to follow. But it has to be controlled by you. The technology is available, and you really have no excuse for allowing big data to create a digital persona of who you are that is not accurate.
0: Now, there is a heck of a point, you know, because I deal and talent. its what I do. Talent acquisition, you know, Sabretooth is focused on the tech talent space and really, really buckling down with data engineers and scientists and machine learning engineers and developers, and AI and so on and so forth. And I think you're really on to something important when it comes to talent per se is I don't think people put nearly enough effort an effort may be a very broad term for this application, or maybe not broad enough, into curating their online professional presence. 100%. You know, LinkedIn is the big elephant in the room as far as professionals go, but there are a lot of other resources. I mean, you can have stuff sitting out on GitHub or HubSpot or whatever, demonstrating your your work or publications. But even a person who's not a PhD with, you know, 20 publications they can list on a resume, you can have a robust LinkedIn profile who, that not only describes where you've been and how you've gotten where you are, but helps people understand how you work. Exactly. And I think somebody sitting where, where you sit from a VC perspective, I think it's critically important that if I want to talk to what you said, one of the young bloods out there, nobody's talking to these old guys like me, you know, I'm just like 30 pounds away from being a Santa Claus in a mall at the holidays, but with this beard going on, but I, I kind of sit back and go, anyone can take control of that LinkedIn profile and showcase themselves and project themselves into what they want to yes. be. As as they are honest, number one, you know, you got to be legal, ethical, moral, and all that. But there are so many opportunities to upskill, to get certifications, to learn. I interviewed uh, someone earlier this year who has an undergraduate, I think in literature, mm-hmm. yet she's a CISO right now you know, uh, two decades later in her career. And it used to be, and then going back to that historicity, you said that word earlier and I'm like, ah, somebody else likes to use that word. I like to throw it out too, because I remember in the eighties and the nineties, and I got my undergraduate degree in accounting. And what I did is when the AICPA really started crunching down on the requirements to be a CPA, mm-hmm. I found out within four or five years of graduating that accounting was not the life for me. <laughs> and I had to move on from that, but and I ended up in the headhunting business and <laughs> And the rest is kind of written in history. But one of the I noticed is prior to that crackdown with ASCPA, CPAs could come and have an English degree or a history degree. It didn't really matter. You just studied, you passed a test, and you worked under a licensed CPA and, you know, got your requirements met that way. And I think we're in a situation in this decade, a context where, man, if you want to go learn Python, go yes, learn Yes, Absolutely. If you want to go figure out how to develop an LLM or how to develop, you know, a machine learning model, you know, just understand what the end is before you begin. Just don't do it because, oh, this makes me feel warm and fizzy.
1: When We have the best system out there. It's called ChatGBT4. Now, is it perfect? No. Is it, does it have bias? Absolutely. Does it have some censorship? Of course. Nothing's perfect. However, I will tell you, and I've told many people this, my first go-to today is not Google. My first go-to is ChatGPT4 because I can have a conversation Mm -hmm. with them. I can ask them, hey, you can go to ChatGPT4 right now. i can give you three examples right off the cuff. And you can go to ChatGPT right now and say, hey, build me a a 10-part series on X, Y, and Z. Bam. It'll give you the 10 parts that you need to write content on, 10 parts you need to write video on, and it'll break it all down, right? Or you could go to them and say, hey, you know, I want to learn Python. Where should I start? It'll say, here's the websites. Here's what you need to learn. You might mm-hmm. say, "Hey, you know what? I've never built a web page before. Can you help me build my first web page?" And it'll give you the actual code. Like, and so, so, <laughs> and so, you don't need you don't need another person to help you begin your journey in starting in whatever endeavor you have. If you have a problem, if you want to fix a bicycle, you can take pictures and send it to ChatGPT and it'll say, "Well, you need this. Heck- it's, a, it's a six. It's a six, not an eight. You know, I mean, like this is the type of mm-hmm. detailed information that these technology tools can give to us. I want to speak to something that you talked about, you know, the boomers maybe, right? I'm in my 40s um, okay. so I'm, you know, I think you're only a decade older than me or so. So you're not too far off. <laughs> <A decade>. <laughs> <laughs> Even for the older than me generation, the four decades deep a generation, you there's, there are enough tools out there to begin cre- creating landmass around you, around who you are mm-hmm. and what you're all about. And it's never too late to pivot in your career. Let me be intellectually honest. I, I'm going to share with you a small rubric that's really important to our venture fund. We tend to invest, uh, 90% of our investments are in people, men and women operators that are over 45 years old. And it might, you, might say, you really? might say, wait, what? Isn't the whole startup venture space supposed to be in, investing in 18 to 22-year-olds who have a great idea? And the answer is, Yeah. That's what Hollywood looks like. I've raised mm-hmm. three venture funds, a $2.5 a, a $10 million, and now I'm on a $16 million venture fund. My success in the last two venture funds, which allowed me to raise $16 million in one of the toughest bear markets humanly possible in 2021, 2022, was because of my track record. And if you look at our metrics, the vast majority of our investments are people over 40 years old. And the reason is because they have life wow. experience. They know what they're doing. They understand the base logic, yeah. the base fundamental things necessary to build a business, right? And so I, we have far better success with 47 year olds than 22 year olds. And I would far more be willing to invest in a 52 year old, 53 year old who's on their second wind and says, you know, I've Mm -hmm. been in the X business for 30 years and there's a major problem to be solved and it's called Y. And I know exactly how to solve this problem. Why? It's like. I'm going to invest in you you have 30 years of experience as opposed to this knucklehead that graduated from you know university two two years ago who assumes that I need to ensure that they eat avocado toast every day like that's not important to me <laughs> what is important to me is time in the seat sophistication experience and capabilities as well as the ability to persevere and understand the problem well and solve it and so I think it's something that most VCs aren't aren't willing to, t- to talk about, number one. But in many cases, they're ignorant of this fact, number two. But the reality is that you have mm-hmm. far better chance of investing in a 52-year-old entrepreneur than a 22-year-old entrepreneur just because they have 30 years of experience in that particular sector, business, or industry, yeah. or market.
0: Let me make two comments to that. One, it's funny because as soon as you said our average age of who we invest behind is like in their mid-40s or yep. whatever… There's a book sitting in my bookcase and others behind my desk here. Uh, well, there's two of them written by the same guy. It's called The Millionaire Mind and The Millionaire Next Door. I've read The Millionaire Next Door. <laughs> and, and I don't know if you recall this little tidbit of information out of it, but most people don't earn or have a net worth of a million dollars until they hit about 50. That's right. You know, And we have this perception that Well, if you're going to be a billionaire, you need to hit it before you're 35 or by the time you're 29 or whatever it might be. Or if I'm not on the Forbes 30 under 30 or 40 under 40, I'm just not going to make it. And it's like talking to a Mm -hmm. high school kid, you know, who's hitting this growth spurt and they're on the football team and they're good and they're good. You know, something like 0.0021% of high school athletes play at a professional level. You know, what makes you so special? you know, and they, ha- they got to get it through their minds that it's not their physical capabilities or talent that make them special in the course of life. It's their, how do they deal? How do they react to life experience? Mm. Do they approach it with the right attitude and the right level of effort? Are they resilient? Or are they willing to stick with it to your point earlier? And that's really what those two books covers is that mindset that, hey, reality is it's grind. Life takes time and you got to approach it. I liked your point earlier is i want to be my best self. Well, what if I got you know, kicked in the gut? What if I got punched in the mouth by life or a setback or whatever? Well, you know what? I need to be my best self in that moment too. Well, I'm a big Stoic reader. So I have a book up here that I'm
1: staring at uh-huh. called The Daily Stoic. I'm a big fan of Marcus Aurelius, Epictetus, you know, these types of Stoic philosophers. And they would, all, they would tell you that the only, dis- the only thing that you actually have in your control is what they call your own reason choice. Now, what your own reason choice, mm-hmm. essentially in English you know, colloquialism, would be the only thing that you have control over is how you react. And I think they're absolutely yep. right, is that regardless of good or bad, the only thing at the end of the day is controlling how you react and respond to that. And you can respond with maturity or you can respond with immaturity. But one thing that I want to get back to, because I do want to do service to the company that you've built and the models that you have and the services that you provide, is that That Mm -hmm. in the recruiting game, in the finding great talent game, I think one of the things that I know that you can provide your talent pool, people that you're trying to help place is help them understand how valuable their online branding, their online narrative is going to be. If I can wax poetic on, this is actually from my third book. But I foresee a future because I've talked with recruiters I've talked with data an- you know, analysts in the recruiting game. I've talked with machine learning uh, experts and AI experts mm-hmm. in the recruiting game, and, and you know this as well as I do is that you guys are now being tooled up even be- beyond what you thought was possible twenty years ago or ten years ago. you guys are being tooled up with big data uh, you know sh- systems, algorithms and formulas that will allow you to truly amalgamate in a maybe a dystopian way a true view of an individual. Now, we're not going to, you know, communist China here and having social credit score, but (laughs) employment history and and, and amalgamating your social presence combined with your work history, it is a big data thing. And I know that there are companies that are taking all of this into account. And you might say, well, that sounds like an eerie Mm -hmm. dystopian, you know, they know all the, well, well, baby, if you can't control it, you might as well optimize for it. And so that's the way that I look at it, mm-hmm. that we now have an opportunity to curate, manage our own online branding. And certainly I see a future. Let me give you three examples. And I wrote about this in my book. There's okay. going to be a future where a recruiter will sit down with a candidate and say, Hey, candidate, we'd love for you to join this company. However, we didn't find enough information uh, about who you are on the internet. And, and there could be HIPAA considerations or, you know, you know, privacy considerations, just. I'm not an expert in that, so forgive me for stepping on some toes there. But understand my point is that these recruiters are going to say, hey, we don't find enough information about you. I can also foresee a, a future where a recruiter will sit down with a candidate and say, man, I saw your videos from 14 years ago when you did that volcano experiment with baking soda. That was really cool. You were really good at those videos you should you know that actually that actually happens yeah yeah that actually you know, so here's my point is they'll say well that i we loved watching you and you were really great at explaining that we also saw some videos of you recently from three years ago explaining how you did this type of project this gave us not only number one visual agreeableness so that we actually like you and think that you look good and you might smell mm-hmm. good but number two your communication style was relatively in sync with our cultural our culture at our company. And number 3, the way that you were able to sophistic with sophistication functionally decompose that idea was really powerful. And because of that social credibility that we saw online, we feel like you're a great candidate. This is the future. There's also going to be a future where the you know a candidate will talk to a recruiter, and the recruiter will say we found all this data on you, we're really curious about your time doing X, Y, and Z, and that could spur on the, the the next conversation, the next piece of relational equity with that recruiter that could build up the point where they actually mm-hmm. want you. And so your social credibility, your social, you know, breadcrumbs, right? How you're creating your brand is going to be even more imperative in the future, which is why I think whether you're a 18-year-old, you know, looking to get your first job or get out into college, or whether you're a 52-year-old and you're looking on your second wind, now is the best time to be leveraging free tools to expand your message, expand your narrative. Mm -hmm. I'm almost certain 100% that you, John, with your company are helping individuals do this anyway. So I just wanted to make sure we, we talked about that future. The recruiting game is going to be using a lot of technology, but there still
0: needs to be a human component to it as well. Totally agree. And I've tried, I've made it a practice over the years. You know, even if we can't help somebody find their next step, we're talking from the candidate side, how can we help you improve as a candidate, right? And I still, to this day, Pretty much every week, there's going to be somebody that I am not representing on a particular assignment that I'm doing. I'm prepping them for an interview because whoever they're working with doesn't do it. And, or uh, they say, Hey, man, uh, how do I improve my resume? And I introduce them to the STAR method, which is what Amazon used to use. I'm going to say, Do, do, there's still a, a situation, task, action, result. And I actually spend some time in investing in them and kind of paying it forward. And, also telling them your resume and your LinkedIn profile and anything else you have online should all be aligned. Because you talked about, well, hey, 14 years ago, we went and we saw this YouTube video of you blowing this baking soda volcano up. And we really liked the fact that when you blew it up, the ceiling caught on fire because it shows that you have a very intense personality or they want to interpret it. There's that, but there's also, hey, yeah, we caught a video of you at Daytona Beach on spring break, and it wasn't that flattering, and we're not sure that it's going to represent you well in this company. Y- I'll tell you a funny story. Years ago, I hired this really sharp candidate for one of one of our teams, and she's fabulous. I mean, she communicated well. She had energy. She's very knowledgeable, very articulate. She gets started in some smart aleck in the bullpen goes and does a Google search, which back then I didn't do this. We're going back 15 years, Mm. 12, 15 years. And turns out, and we had no idea ever, (laughs) she was a fitness model Mm. and was on the cover of magazines and had photo shoots, you know, in the gym, lifting weight, And she was terribly embarrassed by it, Mm. you know, that somebody would kind of do that, but other, but now it's common. And a lot of the big corporations, they go look, they go look for you. Are you doing something embarrassing, something contrary to our quote-unquote corporate values? I think one of the things talent has to, the talent market has to acclimate to and prepare for, and I think hiring teams have to acclimate and prepare for as well, is where do you draw the line between the professional and the human being? At what point do you cease to have empathy? Right. Or at what point do you start to have empathy? You know, because... You could probably take a poll of a room, right? You put a hundred people in it. Have you ever done anything that you would consider embarrassing? (laughs) Or have you changed your position on an issue between high school, college, and adulthood? There are a lot of people right now that are my age and your age that are looking at parenting children a lot differently than they thought they would before they had children. Absolutely. And it's not an indictment. It's not like they were wrong necessarily. They just didn't have that life experience to buttress that. So I think as a hiring team, hiring executives, we need to take people where they're at. Yes. And yeah, we can and we need to consider their current context and we consider their history just like we consider their performance. But you know, I'm not gonna sit there and look at somebody and say, Well, you didn't have the right degree or you did something embarrassing because you're a different person a decade later, five years later, whatever. Right. And we need to be able to dig into it. That's the human element. Yes. That's the part that today, and at least in the near term future, AI can't replace. But what AI can do, I think, is help you stack the deck in your favor. When I see AI in the recruiting game, in, in the talent business, I think about steroids. Because mm-hmm. what everybody is doing is they're taking existing practices and processes, putting AI into it, and accelerating, creating the capacity for more work. But they're not improving the process necessarily on a qualitative basis mm. I think it's more of a quantitative thing which is fine but at some point and I think I shared this with you previously Peter and I don't want to give yeah. the farm away I mean we're working on tech and it's Sabretooth that we're working to address the process qualitative perspective in a way that stacks the deck in the favor of a quality hire. and I think the other aspect of this that the market has to be prepared for and talent has to be prepared for is very important mm. I think we're going to get a lot more fractured and specialized. Oh, yeah. And the idea of fractional work is going to be a career path for a lot of people from early on. But to get there, to be effective fractionally, you first, to your point, you need to go through the grind and become an expert, a bona fide expert in a specific application, which actually kind of takes me to another question I have from a VC perspective. When you look at an idea, how much specificity do you look for? And I'm not talking specificity in the sense of, you know, what's the, what are your brand colors going to be or something like that? You know, what's your swag? And I don't care about any of that stuff, but specific, what problems are you solving for and why is it important?
1: Well, I always like to say that the best ideas stem from imminent need because it's the imminent need Mm. that in so many ways will drive the determination and perseverance to actually build that thing to completion. And so this might not be a perfect rubric, but I believe it saved me millions of dollars and millions of dollars of invested capital that I'm responsible for from my investors and my LP, my limited partners, which is simply this. Mm -hmm. If I can't connect a imminent need that the operator or entrepreneur has to the actual problem that they're portraying to me, then I won't invest in it because there's not enough skin in the game, right? Like, let me tell you my, and I don't mind telling, this is, I've told this so many times to investors. This is my perfect rubric. It's five points. Number one, you're 47 years old. You've spent over 20 years in, number two, you've spent over 20 years in that particular market, industry, or market demographic. Number three. There is a distinct problem within the 20 years that you have worked in that industry that you can functionally decompose, communicate with sophistication, and tell me how your solution is different from the current existing solution. Number four, mm-hmm. you, you can communicate to me a perseverance level. Uh, over those 20 years of that industry, uh, yeah, were you a business analyst for 20 years or do you started as a business analyst, then you moved to management, then you moved to DevOps, and then you moved to sales because they would need you there. And then you moved to marketing, mm-hmm. and then you finished out with an executive VP. Do you have a history of the entire breadth of that particular market or industry? And fifth, and I think this is most important, are you a great storyteller? You see, I'm not in. Okay. That's,
0: I wasn't expecting the fifth point. The fifth, to point, be is my most,
1: interesting. The fifth point is my most human point. And I think you can uh-huh. see from my communication with you, I am a storyteller. I know what it, it takes to communicate effectively across the veil to be able to engage the individual, the other individual in an emotional context. Sa- car salesmen understand this. If the car salesman can get the individual in an emotional context, then they make an emotional purchase, right? <laughs> and, yeah. and, and if you're pitching to VCs, you got to tell me a good story. You got to be able to tell me the details of it. You got to get my heartstrings involved, right? Mm That's that's a kind of little little juicy secret there, but that's what I get hooked on, right? Do you have all the requisite necessary requirements of historicity, experience, expertise, and capability, but also Mm -hmm. are you great at telling a story as to why this is important to not only yourself, the market, and obviously the investors as a whole? Those five things are my core rubric. If you're a You know, 47 year old, 20 20 years deep, had latitude of experience in a company, and you can tell me a great story about a very distinct problem that hurts you, then I am going to be much more greased in terms of the wheels of wanting to invest in you because you have everything necessary to, in my mind, in this rubric to become
0: successful. Yeah. Okay. That's golden. And by the way, I know we're recording this, but I wrote it down too. I didn't expect point number five, though. You know, it's funny because I tell people when I prep them for resumes, the number one thing going at is, and it always surprises people, I think, at least mildly, be yourself. Yeah. Don't put up a facade and be prepared that if somebody is curious about an accomplishment or context, a situation, whatever, tell the story, but be pithy, but tell the story and and have fun and be yourself because you want to kind of reveal that And i think storytelling does that yeah brother uh, you took you the know, words out of you, my mouth gives you a chance yeah it showcases you but at the same time it showcases who yes you are absolutely here's the core reason why i think you're always going to need the human connection and talent acquisition is that every talent acquisition decision almost without exception once you get into, you know, experienced ranks, maybe not entry level where, where you can automate stuff because you got so many of the same skill sets coming out of a college or university. But for everything else is an emotional decision that we try to buttress by looking at the resume, saying the answered interview questions. Well, they've been published or whatever it might be. And as such, in order for me to hire you or you to hire me, I have to have some level of emotional investment. I believe my decision is. This is the right person. exactly. And as a candidate, I believe my decision is this is the right company, organization that I align with, it's for me. Usually you make that decision first. Then we try to support and justify it. And when you get those things aligned, they integrate, they interface well, things can be wonderful. But if you ever put a facade, if you ever fake it, so to speak, you end up running into a really bumpy road that'll throw you out of your, off the saddle.
1: And because I'm actually listening to what you're saying, I feel like you're actually telling me some of the secret sauce behind the product and service that you're building and you're amalgamating, you're congealing these types of aesthetic nuances that actually have a lot of value in the entire recruiting Mm. and hiring and talent acquisition uh, process, which you're an expert, I'm not on, but I can read between the lines pretty well. I'm good at listening to people. So, I think you're telling us that you have some secret sauce or some secret juju in in what you're building that is adding in the human element,
0: which is so imperative and so important. You're always going to need people involved in the talent acquisition process. The question is where and doing what and how. That's an open question, but I can tell you this, there's a fantastic study. And look, you've hired and sourced talent over and over again, and you've put your money where your mouth is on that talent right? When you put money <laughs> behind somebody, yes, yeah, you're investing in an idea, but you're investing in that team, that individual mm-hmm. or that team that's going to drive the bus. And I would tell you this, there's a really great study. You can check out the website. You kind of got to dig for where he has it. It's a leadershipiq.com, I think is the name of the website. But this fellow did a study where he tracked 20,000 new hires across a three-year period, hundreds of companies, hundreds of hiring managers. End results, and this is across multiple functions and industry sectors and whatnot, end results were this, 19% were considered successful hires. The rest were kind of split almost evenly between people who left or terminated or people who were on the job, performing the job, maybe up to kind of minimum standards, but nothing more. And if the hiring team could go back and make a different decision, they likely would. Understood. But that number has just fermented my head for years now, 19 percent, because a company that can crack the code and turn that 19 percent to 38 percent just conquered the world.
1: Oh, no doubt. But it does fall within the Pareto principle and the Pareto distribution quite well, the 80-20 rule. So it actually makes a lot of pragmatic sense.
0: That's hard to fight with, but at the same time, any incremental improvement is a win. If you came to me to, and you told
1: me that statistically your product, your service, your system can functionally, with accuracy and precision, within a standard deviation of mm-hmm. one, be able to d- beat the Pareto distribution by two percent, I would invest in your idea, right? If you were, to, if you were to yeah. say, "Hey, I can beat the Pareto distribution by a standard deviation of one by two and two point seven percent, almost three percent." I'd look at you and say, "Well, I know mm-hmm. that math really well. So if you can tell them that that's possible, <laughs> then that three percent is worth hundreds of millions of dollars, right? Because that's a leg up between yeah, a, anyone what, else." Right? But
0: what's crazy is if you have a million companies, <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. If you do of th- them, th- twenty thousand, yeah, of yeah them, you do three percent better than most companies, you're going to be taking of the mass of, of scale
0: there. So yeah, but I'm just saying, twenty percent of a million companies. So, t- so let's just say, let's keep it real simple. Let's just say that 200,000 out of a million companies can go from 19%. Let's be bold. Let's say they can get to 25% people considered successful hires. You're still, in my mind, within the balance of Pareto principle because you have that other 80% of companies that are languishing at 19% or even
1: lower. If you move away from a logarithmic metric and you move to an exponential metric, then that would, you could actually, I think within rationale, be able to say that we have an order of magnitude greater success than
0: everyone else because of this. Yeah you know, 6% differential. So, well, I mean, if you just, if just stack the deck in your favor for a successful hire every time has a huge impact over time. But I will tell you this, you know, you look at the, you look at external recruiters and all the contingent recruiters offer some sort of replacement or refund guarantee. You can even get replacement guarantees uh, within parameters from retained search firms. Our retention business, which is that mid-level business where we do charge a retainer because I don't like working for free 80% of the time. There's a Pareto principle yep. again uh, on the contingent side. You know, when you look at that, we offer a replacement guarantee as well in that time period. But here's the thought process behind it: that being a limited time frame is there is no control by our organization on what the work environment culture is like. What if the company's succeeding? Or I mean, there's just so much out of your control, and you can't hedge or insure that the company is gonna continue on or that some other life event happens in the market or to an individual to guarantee it. So it's a hard thing to do. And I'll tell you, Peter, something that has my antenna up that catches my attention. And I don't know that it's a problem to be solved rather than a problem to be navigated. AI, the advent of AI, the availability of it spreading its tentacles everywhere in the marketplace, is going to commoditize a lot of stuff, a lot of processes, a lot of skills. It's. I don't think it'll ever commoditize certain things. I don't think it'll commoditize what I'm doing. I don't think it'll commoditize what you're doing because a lot of your decisions when you invest behind someone, yeah, you've got your rubric and you probably got numbers you look at and okay, it's this real from a financial perspective. But you also sit back and go, do I know, like, trust this person? Is this a person who... They've de- they have a demonstrated history of perseverance, resilience, resourcefulness, innovation, experience, to all the things we've been talking about earlier. And I just wonder sometimes at what point do we get commoditized to a space, or we just get and more and more specialized and specific until that's all we are. I,
1: I think we will get more specialized. I think technology has a great way of creating general or generalized capabilities. For individuals, uh, augmenting your capabilities to, to for even more depth and more sophistication. But you're never going to... one. The one thing that AI cannot do as it stands right now is AI doesn't have right. creativity. AI doesn't have innovation. Exactly. And that requires a spark of consciousness. So un, until we get AI, AI to have consciousness, AI is merely an augmentation of a large language data models and large language data sets that I can leverage as a tool Mm -hmm. in my multiplicity of tool belts and and tools that I have in my proverbial belt here. But at the end of the day, we will never be unnecessary. We will always be required. The human element is always going to be required. And maybe that's me trying to think positive towards the future as a technologist. (laughs) And maybe there's some some self-interest within that, that color commentary there. But I, I have to believe that at the end of the day, flesh and blood, we are humans mm-hmm. who connect to other humans with flesh and blood. And at the end of the day, that's how real work is done.
0: No, totally agree. And let me ask you this, because I know we're about to have to wrap up and you can hear my 9.7 no pounds of fury good. Dog in here. Good. <laughs> hey, he takes, he's a noble beast. He he's takes noble. protecting the house in my office. Seriously. I love it. But talk to me for a second. And I think this is important because I think it tells us a lot about people, right? Help us understand, you know, when you look in the mirror, you get up in the morning or you go to engage with your kids or, or with, you know, a potential VC partner or anyone else. What are you passionate about? What's, what's the project or the cause or the purpose that you want to grasp onto every day and make a difference in your life and the lives thanks, of people around Thanks you? for
1: asking. I have sticky notes all over my desk here. And there's a st- sticky note right here that has been up there for 11 and a half, almost 12 years now, and it states, "I want to be fuel for humans." And that is my passion. Hey. My passion is that uh, I'll give you a little bit of context. My life started out as an orphan. So I started out in an orphanage. Right? I had no future mm-hmm. to be, I had no future prospects. right? I wish, most likely should have aged out of the orphanage at 18 years old. But I was adopted by some amazing parents who are just completely salt of the earth. They live out of Austin, Texas. My father is in his mid-70s and he works at a hospital and he makes $12.75 mm-hmm. an hour. So this is how salt of the earth my, my upbringing wow. was. And so for me, starting out my life out as an orphan... Being adopted into Mm -hmm. a family that didn't have lots of means and ways, you know, didn't couldn't give me a trust fund or anything like that, and for me to grow up, learn English, to go back to Korea, learn Korean, go back to Japan, learn Japanese, I was lived there for four years, to earn three graduate degrees Mm -hmm. in the social sciences, to publish three books, to have you know acquisitions and you know worldly success. In, in all of that, my, if, if I, and, and this might seem weird to say, but if, if, a, if an orphan like me could succeed in America through hard work, right? Through, through the sweat of my brow, through digging in and being a finisher, not just a starter, then anybody can do it. And you might say, well, I had, had tougher upbringing. No, you didn't. <laughs> no, you didn't. <laughs> Trust me. <laughs> Trust me. It, is, it, it sucks in America to be poor Uh, and let's say a poor colored person, it is worse Mm -hmm. in America to be a poor Caucasian person. I won't go farther than that, but to be a poor white person in America, you have zero handouts. You have zero help from society at large. You are the trash of the trash. And I know that world. I came from that world. And so I know that if someone like me could achieve what I've achieved, then anyone can achieve that with a positive outlook, hard work ethic, positive thinking, not just positive thinking alone, but, but grabbing yourself up by your bootstraps, being able to, to, to manifest a reality, manifest a world that you desire and that you want to work for. If, if I can do it, anyone can do it. And so when I wrote that, this down 12 years ago, I want to be fuel for humans. That's what I really got serious about doing mm. podcasts and creating content because I've been successful. I've been so blessed through my discipline and hard work that I want to share, like I'm sharing with you for this hour here, Sharing a little bit of my story, hopefully encouraging people in their journey, in their life journey, and being fuel for them. So if, if I could help someone, the, the least thing that I could do from your podcast is help someone feel good about their work today and maybe tr- you know want to try something new today. Brother, I've done mm-hmm. the universe a good service. So th- that's where I'm in, in my life in, in my mid-40s now. Is I want to be fuel for humans. I want to help other people succeed. Obviously, I want to build my own stuff, but I want to be encouraging and I want to be, yeah. I want to leave love and care and all of that in my wake when I'm long in dead.
0: Awesome. Peter, man, I'm indebted. Thank you for joining us very much. And by the way, side note, my dad was adopted at 12 and my second son is also adopted. Mm. And uh, knowing where he came from and where my dad came from, yeah, it can be really rough, you know, because you don't know what as a child, you don't have the sense for it, you know, what you're going to get and where it's going to go. And there's a lot of intrepidity and it's a, it's a challenge. So I think it's a fantastic story. <laughs> I think it's a really great story. Well, thank you, John. And if you're in Texas visiting folks in Austin, don't forget, I'm not far away and outside of Houston. Might have to, might have to compare notes face to face at some point.
1: Well, let's do it. Thanks so much, John. Really appreciate. And if I could say one final thing, if you've, if you have adopted, uh, you know, your children, you understand it. It, Let's just say if you're of the faith and you're doubly blessed. So you've been adopted. And so your son, and this is the way that I look at it is I've been adopted twice once by my heavenly father. There you go. And once by my adoptive parents here. So I have all the means necessary to live a successful life. And I hope, I think I, I think you believe that too.
0: Oh, absolutely. And, and let's just keep the good message up, though, to, the, to to everyone listening, too, that attitude, how you perceive things, how you choose to react, effort over time. And that's from a professional standpoint, it's pretty much everything. You can learn to rest. Absolutely, Peter Saddington, thanks so much, man. You and I are going to be talking again. Take care, brother. Right, thank you. You've been listening to Drowning in the Tech Talent Pool. This podcast is sponsored by Sabretooth. Sabertooth improves the quality of hire and speeds up the time to fill specialized machine learning, data engineering, data science, and developer roles, stretching tech recruiting budgets further by bringing the precision of retained search and the speed of contingent search to the market in one complete solution. Find out more at sbr2th.com and follow me, John Light, on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.